basically a revolution. Like whether you think it's a crisis or not, there's a big movement saying we need to question the very fundamentals of our field. And so people on both sides get emotional about it and upset about it. Welcome to the On Wisdom podcast with Igor Grossman and Charles Cassidy. Over the next hour, we'll be dissecting the latest research from the emerging field of wisdom science. We will discuss what it means for each of us and for society in terms of reasoning and living more wisely in the 21st century. This is uh, episode 25. Thank you for sticking with us so long. Keep those reviews coming. Very much appreciated. They are helpful in getting people to come to the podcast. I have um, an idea for the title of this podcast, which I don't know if I've floated to Igor. I was thinking meta science is better science i kind of like it it's quite catchy but um okay. yeah you're not convinced okay we'll, we'll come back to that. um we'll get to the meta part soon yeah um so we are very excited to have with us today samin vizier samin is uh, an associate professor of psychology at uc davis where she is also the director of the personality and self-knowledge lab she is a former editor of the journal social psychological and personality science co-founder of the society for the improvement of psychological science and co-host of the most excellent black goat podcast samin welcome to the show and if you could start by giving us a just a sort of general casual at a party this is what i do kind of introduction of yourself <laughs> over to you sure uh, well thanks for having me it's nice to be here i do two different things i guess one is my work on personality and self-knowledge so i look at how well people know themselves differences between how people see themselves and how others see them like how mm. they describe the personality versus how their friends and family describe the personality um, so that's one line of work and then more recently i've also shifted to working on how we can do science better and specifically psychology, but a lot of the lessons we're learning about how we can improve our research methods and practices also apply to other sciences, especially other social sciences. So I do a lot of work now on like publication practices, peer review, mm -hmm. things like that. What methods are we using and what methods are appropriate for the kinds of research questions we want to be asking? How often do our conclusions match the evidence? Things like that. Right. So you, so the two sections, one of them is kind of some science itself. And the second is like about the process of science. Yeah. yeah. Right. Okay, cool. Um, you also, your website um, is the coolest website address. I think I've come across a long time. <laughs> your name being Samin Vizier, your website is samin.com. I mean, yeah, uh, I got lucky. It's, yeah. it's one of the perks. That's of very having... lucky. Oh, I, name. I, I think charles.com is probably taken eagle.com i don't know it could, <laughs> it could still be up there um it's probably so, some kind of mafia website yeah. <laughs> uh, before we get into so we're going to be speaking about the, the replication crisis we're going to be speaking about the open science movement but just a little a little before we get into that just on the sort of uh self-knowledge side of things before we get into the research is there anything that you know, uh, a mismatch between how good you think you are at something and how good your friends tell you are at something um, from your own view and your own experience. I mean, I guess the closest thing is just I always underestimate how hard I am to read. Like, I think that everything I say and think is transparent and I okay. say it out loud and it's obvious and so on. And then I realize, no, actually, people have no idea what I'm thinking <laughs> and I'm very unexpressive and flat. And I know that like on a, you know, on some level, I know that that's true about me, but I always forget how true it is and how much it impacts day-to-day -day things. Okay, right. Igor, what about you? Anything you, you think, yeah, I'm really good at this, and people keep saying, you know what, mm, not so much. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, there are many things. I think... Um, yeah, we've only got a couple uh, so of you, 
that's right. That's right. <laughs> so, so the I used to sing before I danced, which is also used to like in the past tense. Uh, but before my voice changed as a teenager, remember that time? Uh, yeah, yeah vaguely. Yeah, it's a while ago now. Vaguely, yeah. yeah, yeah. Ago. <laughs> uh, so I used to be a solo in a choir where you know I was standing in the front of the major Whoa. choir, and then people in the background like sort of. So I feel like I, I'm really good at singing, uh, but uh-huh. since my voice voice changed. Oh. My wife reminds me that I'm actually not that good potentially oh. singing as I think I am. So, anyway, so you worked well as a sort of a soprano junior, but you hadn't made the transition to the sort of baritone adult. Yeah, the, yeah. yeah, no, 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 no career in singing for me. I'm afraid. That's that's a sad story. <laughs> that's okay. I mean, I've switched to dancing, right? <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Okay, so Igor, I think maybe time to dive into the replication crisis, and I'm gonna. You have some questions on this. So, replication crisis. And what is it? Um, for our listeners, it's probably not the most common topic. It's like, what, what replication, what? Repl- a crisis? What kind of crisis? Um, yeah. I wonder if we can start by just uh, going a little bit back. I think it's probably, what, seven years, uh, eight years back, and start thinking a little bit about, uh, explain to our readers uh, and listeners uh, what uh, replication crisis in psychology and in sciences is about. Uh, so, yeah. Simeon, could you possibly tell us, in a very broad terms, uh, what does it refer to? Yeah, so in psychology, it started in 2011, but it had been kind of, there have been like whispers of it, especially in medicine before that. But I'll start with right. where, when it started in psychology. So 2011 was a really big year for psychology and especially for social psychology. A few big things happened. I think it was mostly a coincidence that they happened at the same time. One of them was a paper by a well-respected scientist from Cornell University, Daryl Bem, in our field's flagship journal, the top journal in our field, Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, where he did eight or nine, I think, systematic studies looking for evidence that of ESP or psi, like people being able to influence the past or predict unpredictable events in the future, things like that. And um, his evidence was, you know, about as strong as other kinds of evidence we publish in that journal. It's considered a very, very hard journal to get into, very high standards. And most of us felt that this was not possible. Our, our intuition and, and mm-hmm. laws of physics and everything else tell mm-hmm. us that the phenomena he was describing just can't possibly be true. And so a more plausible explanation to us was that there was something wrong with the methods or statistics that he was using. Huh. But if that was true, right. then there was something wrong with the methods and statistics that all of us were using <laughs> right. because this had passed, you know, the very highest standard in our field. At the same time, there was a very high profile case of fraud in the same field, social psychology. And at the same time, there was another paper that came out late in 2011 that basically showed very, very step-by-step very clearly how the common methods that we use and statistics that we use can very easily produce false positive results. So it looks like there's something there when in fact there's not. And they demonstrated it. They ran a study showing a very implausible effect that listening to the song When I'm 64 actually makes people younger. (laughs) Not feel younger, but actually makes people younger compared to listening to some other song. Yeah, that seems unlikely, Um, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the point was that it's not possible. Yeah, yeah. When I'm 64 is a Beatles song. And yeah, it's funny because you might think it might make people older (laughs) because they're college students. But that was part of their point is like things like, oh, you get an effect in the opposite direction. It's very easy to tell a story about it. Or there's just so many ways we can fool ourselves into thinking that we see a pattern 
when there isn't one. We see this all the time in everyday life, right? Like we yeah. notice some kind of weird coincidence and we think, oh my God, this means something when, yeah. you know, 99 times out of 100, it doesn't mean anything. And it just turns out that scientists can do the same thing. And we, we think that we have safeguards in place to keep us from doing that too easily. And we have some, but they're not as good as we thought. So that was the beginning of what became known as a replication crisis, although that term is controversial. Some people say it's not a crisis. And then the next big wave of evidence was these large-scale replication projects that tried to replicate either many, many different studies or one Mm -hmm. study many, many times. And over and over again, studies that we had thought we could be really confident in, studies published in our top journals that Mm -hmm. we teach our students in classes that are in our textbooks that have been, you know, built on by hundreds of other studies, one after another failed to replicate under the most like rigorous tests. That sounds bad. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's yeah, a, I mean, it depends who you ask. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's a lot of controversy still in our field. Right. I don't know if you would, you guys would agree, but some people think it's completely overblown. This is not a problem. It's normal in science to make errors and for, we don't expect everything to replicate, which is true. Um, but some of us, including me, think, no, this is way worse than what we thought. We thought, yeah, sure, some things are going to turn out to be wrong. Mm. But what's what's turning up is evidence that over and over again, things that we thought we were really confident in aren't solid. And that, that really calls into question the process. It's not just about those findings. It's about the process, really. What were the reaction by scientists when uh, we, you already started to allude to this? Uh, what were the reactions when they were faced with the fact that, or well, some people say it's not really a fact, that there are some mm-hmm. issues with replications and that there may be a crisis, that some of those findings or some of the methods may not be appropriate? What were the main reactions? Yeah, there was a wide range. So some people, especially I think people who had been doing this for decades and had seen a lot of what they thought of as progress being made by the field they were in, um, said, well, that can't possibly be true. Because if you call into question our like very common research practices and say that those aren't solid, then we have to call into question all of this evidence that has stood the test of time, has been around for decades, has made it into textbooks. The people doing it are very, very well respected. They've been in, uh, like inducted into Academy for the Advancement of Science and other things like this. Mm. So like, it can't possibly be true because the implications can't... like, If what you're asking me to believe is that all of that stuff might not be true, then no, I can't accept your premise. Um, that, that doesn't necessarily follow just because the, the outcome, you know, the impact would be huge that it's not true. Right, yeah. right. But it's kind of similar to my logic for not believing the ESP result, which is like, if you ask me to believe that, I'd have to believe all these other things sure. that just on the face of them, I just can't entertain yeah. the possibility they might be real. Yeah. So basically, I'm sympathetic to the idea that, mm. look, my prior is so strong that these people are smart and competent and know what they're doing, and they mm. wouldn't have let themselves be fooled for 30 years and build a house of cards around this phenomenon that they really care about and really want to know the truth about. So what you're telling me would mean I would have to accept that. And that Mm. like, I just need way more evidence to accept that. And I think that's still the position of quite a few people. I mean, maybe that's a little uncharitable. I think they would point to more evidence than just their prior belief that it can't be that Mm. bad. Um, Yeah. Some people um, really critically and, and rigorously questioned the evidence from the replication studies so saying that, you know, there were problems with replications, that maybe the replications were wrong and the original studies were right. Those arguments get very technical very fast. I don't know if we want to go there, but I think they can be refuted pretty easily. And then some people decided to roll up their sleeves and say, okay, well, let's see. Like, let's take some of these findings that we have 
trusted a lot and built on and and test them out. A lot of earlier career people, I think, felt like, okay, let's do this. Let's clean up our act. Let's figure out what we need to do to avoid these problems. It's not so scary. You know, I think if you haven't invested 30 or 40 years of your career already in those old methods, it's easier to be like, okay, cool. We know there are pitfalls. Let's avoid them. Although they, I think they ended up realizing that there is more resistance and pushback and it's not as simple as just like, Oh, this method is better or we can improve it. Let's do that. Yeah. So I guess political reasons not to do that. I was just saying, if you're early in your career, then you don't, your legacy isn't uh, at risk, is it? You're just like, okay, that's good to know. I I can fold that in as I move forward. But if, if you're towards the end of your career and you don't really have much chance to build another legacy, then yeah, yeah, that's tricky. Yeah. And then there was occasional pushback from later career people that was less um, scientific, let's say, than like, (laughs) <laughs> engaging in in critical debate but yeah i mean on on both all both sides or all sides whatever there were people who were less than scientifically minded about it where things got personal or those name calling and stuff like that mm, right but i mean i think that happens whenever there's a this is basically a revolution like whether you think it's a crisis or not there's a big movement saying we need to question the very fundamentals of our field and so people on both sides get emotional about it and upset about it so, like, exactly on that topic, uh, so some people call it a replication crisis or, you know, they are behind it or they're against it. But there is this term, the open science movement, that tries to be connected to this, but also somewhat distinct from it. So can you mm-hmm. tell us a little bit more about what is open science movement about and how did it evolve from this initial attempt to figure out what is working, what is not working, whether these findings are reliable or not. So because I came to open science through this crisis, so I wasn't Mm -hmm. really paying attention to open science, the open science movement before this crisis. So to me, it it felt like it came out of this crisis, but actually Mm -hmm. the movement's been around quite a bit longer. So there have been people pushing for science to be more open. One of the major kind of fronts in this battle was access to published articles. So many published Mm -hmm. articles are not accessible to the public, even Mm -hmm. if the research was funded by taxpayer money. And so this is a really big debate that was ongoing before all of this. So then the two movements kind of joined together in many ways, their goals are the same, which is, look, we need to be able to scrutinize and verify each other's work. Right now, people hide a lot of things, not necessarily intentionally. Some of it was due to like space limitations or whatever. We couldn't describe every detail of our method or share all our data. But now technology is making it possible. So let's just make it the norm that you have to share. You have to be open. You have to let other people see what you did. And that includes Mm -hmm. letting people read your paper, but it also includes letting people see the raw data whenever that's ethically okay. Letting people Mm -hmm. know what else you tried that didn't work, things like that. So transparency is a fundamental pillar of, I think, the revolution in psychology and in other fields to deal with these replication problems, but it's not the only thing. So my view is that open science and transparency is step one, and then step two is actually using that available information to scrutinize, criticize, correct each other and ourselves. So it's not enough to make things open. We then have to also, like find the errors and correct them and make sure we're not falling in the same traps that we did before. And that's kind of separate from the open science movement. The open science movement isn't really about criticism or correction in itself. It's just about okay. making things available. Yeah, so one other thing that like, and so to lay out all these different terms for our listeners on the table, we have the replication crisis or 
crisis question mark for some people, but there are certainly issues with replications of scientific findings. There is an open science movement that potentially has existed before uh, this replication crisis in social and medical sciences started, but now really takes on momentum and there are more people potentially joining, there are new resources available. But there is also this other term of being a meta-scientist. So so some researchers now, they uh, sort of shift gears from doing research on, let's say, if you are psychologists on people, to do research on researchers. They, in psychology, they talk about meta-psychology. What is meta-science? How do you distinguish this from open science movement, uh, from the replication crisis? How would you define what the key characteristics of a meta-scientist are right now? Yeah, so I think meta-scientists, the way the term is often used, refers to people who had some kind of career or training in um, a, what I will call a substantive science, for lack of a better term, but not meta-science, but another science, and then started looking at their own science through the lens of science. I'm not sure that's all that new. So in medical science, it's been around a while. There's mm-hmm. something called the Peer Review Congress that's been around for a long time where they do research on peer review, specifically in medicine, to see how well it's working, if there's publication bias, if results are getting out, etc. The phenomenon of meta-scientists has existed for a while, but the term has picked up a lot recently. And I think there's been more people from more fields now deciding, wait, I want to spend at least part of my time working on how we can improve our process. That's not all that different from what another thing that's been around a while, which is quantitative psychologists or quantitative people in other fields mm-hmm. who focus just on the quantitative methods on like improving our statistics and things like mm-hmm. that. So it's one way, I mean, in a way that is kind of meta science, but now it's broader. It's not just how can we improve our statistics, but how can we improve the way we design a study, the way we run studies, the way we communicate about our work, um, the peer review process, things like that. But another thing it's similar to, which has existed for centuries, is other fields that have studied science. So philosophy of science, history of science, sociology of science, science and technology studies. Um, So those, many of them have approached the study of science from a scientific perspective as well. Not all of them. Some of them, it's a different kind of perspective, which is also useful. So I don't want to sound like we invented the idea of scientists studying science that has existed for a long time. But I think... At least in psychology, what's interesting about the meta-scientists, the people who now identify themselves that way, is um, that they're often people like me who were at one point all in on the substantive science and then started to think, wait a second, like maybe this isn't as clear of a road to truth as I thought it was. And Mm. I want to be a little bit skeptical and critical of, of our process. So this notion of criticism, uh, what I find fascinating, and maybe for our listeners, it's also something that they already notice, is uh, it's fascinating that there's this connection between what we talk about on this podcast, when we talk about wisdom, when we talk about intellectual humility, and be open-minded that you may be wrong, but also talk about the pitfalls, the defensiveness, uh, the myopia that we often subject to. And guess what? Scientists are subject to that too. And they do it all the time. And in fact, they may be doing it even more, especially if they build their careers on it uh, and uh, become very, very defensive. Is that sort of one of one way to potentially interpret yeah. uh, some of these processes that I seem to be going on in our scientific community? Yeah, I think that's a lot of what's going on. And part of it is because of how non-scientists perceive us. I think that there's a lot of mm. evidence that the public, non-scientists, just, you know, everyone else, sees scientists in a very, very positive light. There's surveys by Pew that show that people have a more positive view of scientists than they do of almost any other group in society. 
I think the military is the only one that's as positive or more positive in the U.S. is among Americans. Mm, um, right. So I think that goes to our heads a little bit. I think, you know, we tell people we are, we prioritize self-correction. We're all about self-criticism and self-correction. We just want to know the truth. We don't have, get our egos involved. People believe that. They think, oh, science is, you know, really good at finding the truth and really objective and so on. Actually, interestingly, according to the Pew results, they believe that about science, but they're actually not that naive about scientists. So they mm-hmm. don't agree that scientists, like, present only accurate information and will admit mm-hmm. when they're wrong and all that. They're They're appropriately skeptical about that but they believe that somehow despite the fact that scientists are human just like everyone else the process of science somehow there's like these safeguards that make it so that it's hard to fool ourselves and i think that might be more true in some sciences i'm not sure but i don't want to like paint all sciences with the same brush i think there are sciences that have been around longer or sciences that have been attacked more like climate science might be one where They've just had to, like, check themselves a million times, be really careful not to exaggerate, you know, everything they do gets scrutinized. And there, I think it might be more accurate. The public's perception of how how science works might be true of some of those sciences. So I don't want to say just because psychology has this problem, and it's not just psychology, I'm sure of that, but just because some fields have this problem, then all of science has this problem. I mean, all of science has to struggle with this issue. But some sciences, I think, have risen to the challenge and maybe because they've been forced to. And actually, I think some of this might be true, just to be a little controversial, of Mm -hmm. my subfield of personality psychology. So we went through, before I was born, the field went through a period of very heavy attack from other fields. And basically, it was destroyed. In the late 60s and 70s and early 80s, it didn't exist anymore. There were almost no personality psychologists and it wasn't well respected. And I think it, because it had to build itself back up in the late eighties through the nineties and two thousands from the ground up, it had to just do everything very, very carefully. And like you see now in the personality literature, we almost never make bold claims. We almost never say anything interesting. Like our work is really (laughs) quite boring. Um, Yeah. Um, But I think it was out of necessity. It's not like we're not like inherently more modest people. And so Mm. I think there are other fields like that where for whatever reason, they've had to be more careful and not let themselves and put in safeguards to not let their natural inclination towards like confirmation bias and motivated reasoning, let them make too many false claims. Do you think just on a broader level, zooming out, like historically speaking, that's, you know, psychology relative to other scientific disciplines is still relatively young if you're looking at sort of centuries so is this just part of the sort of birthing process maybe other disciplines went through it with like alchemy and stuff like that you know yeah um it's still kind of early days for psychology yeah i mean it's interesting because a lot of people find this really depressing people in psychology and i just think it's nothing to be embarrassed about yeah we're we're young science and you know what else i would say is that we have a lot more pressure on us from the public to come up with answers because people want to know how to save their relationships. They want to know how to raise their kids. They want to know, you know, how to be happy, how to be wise, how to all these things. And they're asking us for answers. And when we give answers before we should, we get rewarded. And I think that's less true in some other fields. Mm. I mean, it's true, for example, in nutrition and education too, which are similar, I think have similar problems for similar reasons that people just need to know now, what should they do with their kids? What should they do in terms of their food and things like that? Same with many areas of psychology. And I think the areas of psychology where that's less true, like some areas of cognitive psych that are drier and less connected to the questions people tend to write into advice columns about, um, then those, I think, haven't fallen into the trap as much of making extravagant claims or rushing to publication before we really know the truth. 
I want to push back here a tiny bit, uh, mm-hmm. namely the idea that, you know, lay, lay public understands science and just wants uh, science as is, and then they have sort of like this disagree. They understand that scientists may, uh, may be human, but science is science. I don't think lay public has a very good understanding of science in the sense that at least, again, looking at North American public, uh, we are not very comfortable with uncertainty. And in science, you know, we may, at least in empirical science, we make uh, predictions with a certain degree of error. And I think that part about the error and the uncertainty is often yeah, not really present. Mm-hmm. I think it's an empirical question how much that's on the part of consumers and how much it's on the part of the researchers. And I don't, there's a whole literature on science communication that I'm not that familiar with, but I've seen a few studies that suggest that we, we tend to underestimate what non-scientists can handle in terms of nuance mm-hmm. and uncertainty. I agree, but often it's not communicated in this way. Right, right. There's some research, yeah, that like Chris Chambers is a co-author, I can't remember who the first author is, on some research looking at whether hype and exaggeration in science news is coming mm-hmm. from the journalists and the press oh, release office or from the authors themselves. And I don't remember the details, but a a good chunk of it is coming from the researchers themselves. And that's also my experience in my role as a journal editor. I often found myself pushing back a lot with authors Mm -hmm, where I would mm -hmm. say, look, I'm going to publish your paper. You don't need to make these extravagant claims. In fact, I will only publish it if you take out these extravagant claims. (laughs) And it's amazing to me how often they would be reluctant to do that. And it's interesting in some cases, like I remember one author in particular who was like, no, look, I want to take that out. I think it should be enough to just show this more basic thing. But I think the reviewers are going to ding me for it if Mm. I do that. And I was like, look, I'm the editor. I'm promising you that I won't reject it for (laughs) that reason. But it's, it's true. They're right. That like, that's the lesson they've learned, right? Is that if you want to get published in a top journal and you want to get a raise and you want to get hired and all that, like you are on average going to be better off making the more extravagant claims. You're not going to get punished for it. You're going to get rewarded for it. But it's interesting to me that even when I'm in a position where I can guarantee, look, we'll publish it if you take this out. There are some authors that will be like, no, thanks. We'll take it elsewhere. They'd rather make the more extravagant claim. Um, so it wasn't really about external pressures. There, mm-hmm. are, There is some of it that's coming from the authors themselves, the researchers themselves, who just deeply believe the thing they don't quite have evidence for and want to say it as if they do have evidence for it. Mm. Um, so it yeah, sounds like an incentive structure too. problem, maybe. Both, yeah. I mean, I think it's an incentive structure problem. I don't think it's just that. I think we are invested in our theories and in our research questions, yeah. and we really want to believe that we've found a solution or that our result is consistent with our theory, and even if it's not... Mm-hmm. and it's just super hard to remove that bias. Mm. And even if the incentives aren't pushing, I mean, in, in the real life, yes, the incentives are almost always pushing to make that bias even worse. Mm. But even I think if you remove those incentives, it would still be, there's this dis- disposition. I think that humans, many humans have, there's individual differences, but many of us have to want, you know, the thing we want to believe is easier to see. Right. So I think that's a great moment for us to look at the the other string to your bow. So I think we're going to come back to this string. Let's have a look at the other uh, element of what you did and you said at the start. So uh, self-knowledge, right? <laughs> that's a big one. Mm-hmm. So in terms of wisdom, obviously self-knowledge is considered pretty important. It should help you um, be less biased in your decision-making, etc. So I, I guess I'm confused. Uh, why, when self-knowledge strikes me it strikes me as something that would be so valuable for humans to be able to tap that it seems so hard to come by and yeah do you, do you have any thoughts as to why something so helpful is so tricky to find or is it in fact that self-knowledge is not helpful and it's damaging so yeah any thoughts on that 
I think the sad truth is that we don't know. There was a huge debate in social psychology, social and personality psychology in the 80s and 90s about whether having positive illusions about yourself is more adaptive or being accurate about yourself is more adaptive. And in the end, both sides, I think there were like huge methodological problems with their evidence. Right. And my conclusion from all that, I studied it for a while and then I gave up and I was like, I don't think we know how to operationalize it, how to measure Mm an individual person's level of self-knowledge. And probably there isn't like one number that can capture how much self-knowledge they have. So yeah, I used to, I used to, I joke that like, I used to think that I wanted to study whether self-knowledge is good for you. And if so, how can it be improved? And then I realized that was like saying, I want to study life on a planet in another solar system when we have no idea how to even get there. If there is such a thing, if, you know. <laughs> right. um, so, so I you, scaled some, way back. Yeah, some other, other questions that needed some attention before you could even approach that. Yeah. And I think how to measure how much self-knowledge someone has is one I haven't found a satisfactory answer to. So in my work, I look at self-knowledge, but it's an one number for my whole sample. So all like whatever, 200 people in my study, I can say on average, the correlation between how they see themselves and what they're actually like as measured by X, Y, and Z is, you know, 0.3. <laughs> but that doesn't tell you. So that tells you like the glass is half full or half empty, depending on how you want to look at it. Mm. but it doesn't tell you who has more or less. And there are some ways to try to get at that, like some statistical ways to say, okay, well, the people who have more self-knowledge, are they happier and stuff? But none of the ways we've found to tackle that question are very convincing to me. I have some papers where we, we publish some results and we say, look, maybe this suggests that Mm. self-knowledge is good for you, but I'm not convinced that we've really found a good way to measure it. Um, I can actually uh, jump in there. I've yeah. always been wondering about this little part. So for our list, there's uh, the, the way how this accuracy is often measured in personality and social psychology is uh, you ask your friends and you ask the person. And then you compare the responses in how the friends evaluate the person to how you evaluate yourself. Now, Who of those is more correct? Do you know yourself better or do your friends know you better? And I often wonder, well, and I see also, depends on if you ask a personality psychologist or a social psychologist, you get some different answers. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Sometimes you get the answers, well, of course, you know yourself best because uh, how can your friends know you? Because uh, those processes are internal. So friends cannot really have access to your internal process and you could be masking it or something like that. Mm -hmm. But there's also this idea of like, well, there's self-deceptions and biases and illusions, et cetera, et cetera. So you have Mm -hmm. no idea who you are. It's only your behavior and how you're perceived by others that really matters. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I can see justifications for both sides also made Mm -hmm. in the the scientific community. What is your take on that? How do we actually determine uh, what is accuracy here? What is correct? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think my answer makes a lot of scientists uncomfortable, which is that I think we have to use reasoning and logic about for Mm -hmm. the given thing we're interested in. If I'm interested in how kind somebody is, then I have to reason through, okay, does it matter more to get the insight that the self is going to have about their intentions and their thoughts and feelings that other people won't have a lot of access to? Or does it matter more to get the perspective of an external person who's not going to be biased by thoughts, intentions, and feelings, and is just going to, or is going to base their perception more on behavior? Mm -hmm. And in the case of something like how kind a 
person is. I care more about the behavior. I don't care that much that right. you had kind intentions or thoughts or feelings. Like I'm a good example of that. I, I think a lot of nice things about my friends, but I often don't reach out and say them. <laughs> and then I'm like, I expect them to somehow know that I thought of them. Um, that doesn't make me a kind person, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So for kindness, I would go with what other people say about you, but for something like anxiety, I would go with what you say. And we do find, so those are two areas where we find a pretty big discrepancy between Mm -hmm, how people mm -hmm. describe themselves and how people close to them describe them. And this is a really interesting thing when I present these results. So there's other traits like extroversion or how, how um, hardworking you are. Those things you and your friends agree, like people who are extroverted describe themselves as extroverted, their friends describe themselves as extroverted, same for people who are introverted. So that's not hard, right? We can say, okay, they're both pretty accurate. But when they disagree, mm-hmm. I make this argument that, well, in the case of kindness, I trust the friends. And in the case of anxiety, I trust the self. And it makes people really uncomfortable because I don't have an empirical basis for that. I'm just reasoning based on my definition of those character traits mm-hmm. that like, I just think it doesn't matter as much for anxiety, how you're behaving. It matters how you're feeling. And for kindness, it doesn't matter as much in fact, I think your thoughts and feelings can be misleading you into thinking that you're more or less kind. Than, or there's like people who think they're not kind because they sometimes have unkind thoughts, but they like bake muffins for their friends every day and, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. give their friends rides right. to the airports all the time. So like they're wrong in the other direction. It can be wrong in either direction and by overweighting thoughts and feelings. So, yeah, I think it really depends on what what trait you're talking about. I, I guess I'm quite interested to know about the the link between the work you did to the between the two strings essentially uh, of mm-hmm. of what you outlined is what you you do you know you work on self knowledge and you also work on improving sort of the field itself like what do you see the mm-hmm. link between those two areas as being um it sounds like too much of a coincidence you know um yeah. uh, what's the journey between those two parts I think there's two links. One is my realization that what I was trying to do was much much harder than I thought and I was fooling myself about being able to answer like partly yeah, I was being pushed by grant agencies to say that I could solve these problems in three years with $200,000 or something. Mm-hmm. And yeah, coming to the realization that I was completely deluded. So my, my substantive work was an example of trying to do too much and exaggerating and things like that. I think I was guilty of that as much as anybody else. So that was one link, but the other more direct link is, yeah, I think part of what got us into this mess this crisis is that we didn't acknowledge our susceptibility to self-deception, motivated reasoning, Mm. things like that. And we didn't put in enough safeguards. We thought a little bit of peer review is good enough. Like it'll get caught if we're fooling ourselves, it'll get caught in peer review. And I think we were putting way too much on this very flimsy system. That's really not meant to, or able to catch those kinds of errors, especially because it's the same people reviewing as Mm. authoring the papers. And Mm. we think that, we want to believe that the process is sound because we're using that same process. So we're not going to be in a position Mm -hmm. to really question it. So, yeah. So I guess you're, it does put you in a a very strong position to sort of look at, you know, rolling up your sleeves and and looking about how the the field that can be improved itself, having this background in sort of self-knowledge. Does it, do you have any thoughts or, you know, your experience in that field? Does it help you understand any of the reactions from the different kind of parties within, within psychology? I'm not sure. I mean, it should. I agree. Like, I think that we should anticipate that scientists would be very defensive and resistant to the idea that they've been fooling themselves deeply for years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the research in my field and my research should have anticipated that. But I find it shocking that actually social psych and personality psych are in the eye of the storm and we're falling for the same defensive reactions as 
medical scientists or others, you right. know, like we're well, you the experts know all, on this process. Groups, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like, like that whenever a social or personality psychologist appeals to like, but I care about finding the truth. So therefore I can't have gotten the wrong answer. Like I can't have fooled myself because I know deep down that my goal is to find the truth. I know that I actually really want the truth. So therefore I can't be biased. I can't have been led astray by these cognitive biases. And I think you would never accept that and uh, that claim from someone right. else. Like if one of your participants said that you would laugh and like want to <laughs> report that as an anecdote in your paper. Yeah. 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 Um, so I feel like I have to say that, no, it hasn't helped because I see that evidence all around me that many of us who study these things still don't see that they're, they apply to us. So I want to jump on this point of defensiveness and talk a little bit more about the collaboration and competition. So one thing that uh, seems to have happened is that uh, since the open science movement and replications and credibility revolution, as some people call it, started to unfold, some scientists became really defensive when it came out that their findings were wrong. But uh, then there was also this other side to it. Some people started to critique uh, the replication open science movement because they were saying that maybe this new kids on the block are not well-intentioned. And even like you already mentioned in name-calling, like people were called like mythological theorists, data police, uh, etc etc specifically to refer to people who to scholars who spot out and point out mistakes in other research and that instead of that instead of doing this terrorist activities or policing uh, uh, you should give people the benefit of the doubt maybe they just didn't know what to do and that often when people are accused they are they feel threatened now what is your take on the role of sort of cooperation and benevolence in this type of fairly intricate, I would say, interpersonal situations. How can one reconcile these different perspectives on how to advance science on the one hand and point out mistakes and at the same time maintain? Is it important to even, I mean, that's a question. Is it important to maintain some kind of sense of benevolence here? Or is it just like this is irrelevant in this domain because it may be problematic? What do you think? I definitely think it's important for people who are criticizing others to maintain some intellectual humility, to think that they might be mm -hmm. wrong, to think that mm -hmm. there might be some explanation they mm -hmm. hadn't thought mm -hmm. of, to be very careful and not make errors and not be sloppy in their criticism, because there are pretty serious consequences of some kinds of accusations. So I think that's absolutely true. And there are some specific cases of people failing to do that and being sloppy and ad hominem and emotional in their attacks and things like that. And those get a lot of attention because they're, they're so horrible, but I think they're really rare. And what I see happening a lot more is people who do give others the benefit of the doubt are very benevolent. So first of all, they, they're often people who came across a finding in a published paper, say that just seemed off. And then they do more and more investigation. Right. They look into it more. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They spend many, many hours before they ever talk to anyone else about it. Then they talk to a few people and have other people check their work. And, you know, they're mm. extremely careful. I think many times they understand that it's very likely they're missing something. They want to be really careful before they say anything. Then they like discreetly mm -hmm. maybe reach out to the author and say, Hey, I couldn't understand these numbers. They didn't seem to add up to me. Can you help me understand them? Sometimes they might reach out to the editor of the journal that published the paper so they they go through the appropriate channels very often, and there's some debate about what the appropriate channels are, but I think they're often trying to do the right thing, trying to keep it quiet, 
And it's only when the gatekeepers shut them down and sometimes do much more aggressive things than just shut them down, like threaten them, um, mm-hmm. accuse them of being terrible people or things like that. that at that point, they're, they feel that they have no other option than to go public. And I think that is the right thing to do many times in that situation when the people whose job it is, whose responsibility it is to investigate these things and take these things seriously, don't do that or do harm to the people who brought this to their attention. I think you should go public. And when people only see that, they think, oh, why are they being so mean? Why are they doing this publicly? Blah, blah. But one thing to understand is I think there's a lot of frustration built up from having tried really hard to be generous and Mm -hmm. charitable and so on for so long and then being treated horribly. And I mean, I'm biased because a lot of the people who have done this work are people I know personally. Actually, I don't know that I'm all that biased because I, I know them personally more because they did that work rather than mm-hmm. like they were friends of mine to start off with. But I hear their stories and the power imbalance is so right. strong and the people who have the power are so good at silencing critics and people who point out errors and so on that most of my sympathy goes to the people who are doing this for nothing. I mean, there's nothing in it for them. Right. They just when they were students, they were told that science is about correcting errors, that we really care about self-correction. And so they kind Mm -hmm. of naively thought, oh, well, then they'll want to know about this error (laughs) and then they get beaten down. So Mm -hmm. I do, I do see that sometimes the, the critics are in the wrong. It happens, but it's so, so common for the people in power and the gatekeepers to be in the wrong and for critics to be treated badly. And I think we don't see a lot of that. And so it's harder to understand why the critics Mm -hmm. get frustrated. Samin, you said earlier that personality psychology had sort of had kind of been through the mill and then sort of built itself up back from the ashes. Like, um, mm-hmm. and so it was kind of a bit, has got a sort of maturity to it now. Is social psychology like a, is it behind the beat and that hasn't been through that process yet? I don't know that it will go through that process because it's so popular and so big. Like, it's hard for me to imagine social psychology getting so beaten down that it has to rebuild from scratch. Right. So I don't think it'll have the same narrative. If mm. there's, some kind of major change. I don't think it'll come from being obliterated almost into non-existence and then coming back. So, I mean, I think that's a big open question for me in in social psych is what's going to happen. Like there's still Mm. these factions. There's still people really digging in their heels on both sides of the replication crisis issue. And I don't see one winning over the other. So I don't know what's going to happen. Well, that's, I mean, you're, you're embracing the uncertainty. That sounds like a very wise position. Um, I, I wanted to, yeah, look, I guess, to look uh, a little bit uh, forwards and just sort of begin to talk about what can be done and sort of various things that are beginning to be put in place. And, you know, how technology may um, be offering some solutions, might have some negative aspects to it as well. But there's one particular tool or um, development that Igor is always going on about, banging on about, I might say, which is preprints. And he's, he's, he has a lot of faith in the concept of preprints. Igor, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think people outside your guys' fields will necessarily have heard of preprints and, and why there's uh, excitement and, and uh, hope that these could be a part of the solution. So, Samin, could you just kind of tell us what it is and why it might be helpful in sort of making for better science? Yeah. So, I'm going to tell it from a particular angle. And so, I'm curious to hear if Igor's angle is different. Okay. Um, but so, before preprints, so traditionally, the way that a research finding would become public was the authors would write it up in a manuscript and they would send that manuscript to a journal and the journal would send it to a few reviewers. And all of this happens in secret. So like 
the editor's not allowed to share it with anybody else. The reviewers are not allowed to tell anybody about what they read in the manuscript. It's all private. Mm -hmm. And then the editor makes a decision, maybe after some rounds of revision. And then if it's accepted, then it appears in print months later uh, or years later, sometimes from when it was originally written. And those of us reading the journals, we don't know what else got submitted and rejected. We just see like the final product after peer review of the things, only the things that got accepted. Mm -hmm. And we just had to trust that journals were doing a good job, that they were filtering out bad work, that the stuff that was published had been through the ringer and any errors would have been caught and so on. And after having more experience on the other side of the system, being a journal editor and so on, I realized like that blind trust is completely unwarranted. Like, (laughs) It's, it's just it's unrealistic to expect right. that like three or four people who are really really busy and doing this as volunteers mostly yeah. in their spare yeah. time yeah. are going to scrutinize the papers. Um, it's just way too generous to assume that the papers they reject are clearly bad and the papers they accept are really good and okay. fin- finished products that don't need to be improved anymore and so yeah. on. And what I think so preprints when they came along are an opportunity for researchers to post their papers publicly whenever they want. So it could be pre preprint implies before it's published in a formal journal, but it could be after it could be any time it could post it as a preprint and never submit it to a journal. It could just okay. always exist only as a preprint. So it's a way for researchers to control when their work is made public right. independent of the gatekeepers of the journal. So it, it provides many, many opportunities. It provides the opportunity for researchers to get feedback on their work from people they don't know personally, like not just have to send the paper directly to someone, but just post it publicly and see who wants to give them feedback. It provides all of us an opportunity to see the work independent of whether the journal decides that we should see it or not. So someone could post it and then people could be like, wow, this paper is amazing. Everybody agrees or almost everybody agrees this paper is really good. And then the authors might say, oh, well, actually it got rejected at these five journals that I tried to submit it to. Yeah, just and we that- learn something about that process, right? Yeah, I was just thinking that the journals, how do they feel about this? I mean, that's kind of, it's, um, they must come under levels of scrutiny that they've never had before and they probably don't appreciate it, I would guess. I don't think that's happened yet. So I think this is the potential that preprints, preprints can open up the black box of peer review, but I don't think it's happening yet. Partly, we haven't gotten a culture of like reviewing preprints and making comments on them or even expressing. So now there's like a really simple way you can give a thumbs yeah. up to a preprint using something called plot it. So it ha- it's linked to your identity. You can't just like anonymously troll and like give <laughs> thumbs up to everything or whatever. Like, there'll be consequences right. if you do that. Um, so it's this really cool system where you could see how many people like a paper. Is this something where there is really good consensus that a lot of people who are generally quite critical and don't give thumbs up very easily have given a thumbs up to this right. paper. And then we can start judging journals if their if their judgment is very different from what the community thinks um in this more open way but for that to work we need to start reading each other's preprints and commenting on them there's still i think there's a bunch of reasons why that hasn't happened yet i'm confident that's the future it will happen but right now we're already overworked by doing all this work for journals so i think we need to shift some of that work and start saying well actually maybe i shouldn't be giving journals all of my free time maybe i should give some to this open community that I trust more and is more transparent than journals who just say, like, just believe us, we do a good job. And I think there's also some reluctance to give negative feedback on preprints. It's still early days and Mm. authors might not be expecting it and wanting it. And so is it okay to write a critical comment on a preprint, things like that. So all those norms have to evolve, but it takes time. And then the comments, I guess, are public as well, right? Everything's public. Yeah. I mean, there's again, like the norms haven't really worked themselves out. So you could comment directly on the preprint. There's tools to do that. You could write a separate blog post linking to the preprint and saying, here's mm-hmm. what I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, at an extreme, 
uh, someone could decide. So for example, I'm done editing a formal journal, but I miss editing a lot. And my mom was like, why don't you just like write people and tell them what you think of their papers? Um, (laughs) And I was like, well, I mean, there is this idea of something like an overlay journal where you don't have to have any formal power granted to you by anyone else. You can just say every month Mm -hmm. I'm going to make a table of contents. It's going to link to five papers that I read and liked, and maybe I'll even write a blurb about what I liked about them. Or you could include ones you didn't like or whatever. There's like all this now open space for what peer review could look like. It doesn't have to be this formal gatekeeping that happens in a black box that no one, no one can see. Do you you have a sense with this kind of openness? This technology seems to be offering the, the opportunity to, for greater transparency and openness. Do do you have a sense of whether that will inevitably lead to kind of more uh, intellectually humble, more open-minded practices in science, or could it go the other way and people there's just more science out there, you know, thousands of preprints and people need to become even more sort of, uh, narrow minded. Uh, yeah. Just to kind of get heard above the noise. Like, could it go that way? Or, or do you, or do you, or do you feeling positive that it'll go the other way? Oh, no, it definitely could go that way. I mean, I think that's, so I think it's very possible that an open review community becomes just a popularity contest, you know, right. like Yelp or, Amazon reviews that apparently have now become completely corrupted and things like that. So we need to be careful about that. What I would say is that I don't think we should be too confident. That's not what the old system is like too. I think who you are, how famous you are, whether you're at an Ivy league, all of these things probably matter a lot more in the closed peer review system than we'd like to think. And so if we recreate those problems in the open system, that's bad we shouldn't assume they're not there in the closed system. So I'd rather try to tackle them in the open system where we can identify them mm-hmm. than try to tackle them in the closed system where people can just deny that they're a problem and we can't really prove it. So it could be bad, but not as bad as it currently is. Yeah, it could. I mean, it could even be worse than it currently is, but the solutions will be easier in an open system. So it could get really bad, but it's our responsibility and we don't have any excuse not to fix it in an open system do you, do you have any um a sense of what could be done to sort of nudge it towards the optimistic outlook that you know and what could be put in place to avoid this sort of popularity contest path the ideas i have are not very creative and i'm not confident at all in them but like i mean i think there's some things we can learn from the old system so like the idea of blinding which is when you read a paper don't look at who the authors are and what institution they're from and Mm -hmm. evaluate it independent of that so that becomes harder with preprints because all that information is now publicly available but one thing i've been advocating for and i I don't know how to make it happen is for preprint servers to default to not showing the author's names and institutions Mm. and you have to make it possible to see that information. I think it's relevant for some things. Sometimes you want to know if there's a conflict of interest between someone who reviewed it and the authors or things like that. But if the default was like, it's not there, you'd have to click a button to see it. Then those of us who want to be able to evaluate papers without knowing who the authors are, that would make it easier for us. And I think we should try to push ourselves to do that. I mean, that depends on a kind of integrity and, you know, trust in each other that we are doing. There's no way to enforce it. So that's, probably too idealistic also like a system where we organize each other one thing that the traditional system does well is it guarantees that at least one person will read every paper the editor at least will read every paper and so i think it would be nice if there was a way for people to say hey i just posted a preprint i would like it to be reviewed and then people with similar expertise would get an alert saying hey there's a new paper that no one's looked at yet would you mind looking at it kind of how the traditional system works where reviewers are selected but this is more like grassroots 
but still a way to try to ensure that every paper gets at least some eyeballs on it and some feedback. That sounds sounds exciting. Like I'm quite excited about this new way of science emerging, uh, and it seems like it's going to rely on um, people putting some time out of their weekly schedule to look out for the sort of interests of others because they're trying to protect the whole scientific community. I mean, I guess people are busy, and that's a big ask. But do you see that happening? Well, what I've been trying to do is frame it as like, you're already doing that. You're doing that for publishers of traditional journals. And often they're making a lot of money, like huge profit margins off of your labor. So why not take some of that time, Mm. say like, I'm now going to split it 50-50 for every review I do for a journal. I'm going to read and comment on a preprint or something like that. I mean... But I'm guilty of this too. So back in July, I wrote a blog post saying I'm going to flip myself. I'm going to, instead of like editing a traditional journal and and doing reviews for traditional journals, I might keep doing some of that, but I'm going to shift my time that I would have spent on that more and more towards open reviews. And I haven't started right. it. It's been six months. Um, so I understand the time constraints and it's not, there's not much reward. There's not much incentive to do it, but that's also true for traditional reviewing. Like all of us, our careers would not suffer much if we stopped reviewing for traditional journals. So we're doing it for some other reason. Maybe it wouldn't be too hard to shift that over to a more community-based system rather than a pub- for-profit publisher-based system. When If we were to switch it all the way to the community-based system, one thing that would probably inevitably happen very quickly is some form of a Metacritic type of website that would aggregate mm-hmm. those mm-hmm. that those preprints that are considered to be more valuable or Mm. more vetted than others and put them in sort of almost like a paper format, Mm -hmm. uh, like where you can read the top 10 hits from the last month, according Mm -hmm. to the largest number of... But I wonder then the threat to the traditional journals and uh, let's say Springer publishing group, uh, the Elsevier publishing group, and all those other mega corporations uh, that make a lot of money on our free labor. So Mm. what are the reactions? What are the potential reactions that we can anticipate from them? I mean, besides the fact that they want our papers to be taken down and to prohibit us from posting our preprints. Well, I think so far they haven't gone after that too much. They haven't tried to antagonize the open science community very much. And I don't know, I don't understand this as well as some other people do, but I feel like some mm-hmm. of them are trying to like be like, yeah, we're on the same side. We're right. for open access too. And so they make these open access journals, but charge an exorbitant amount mm-hmm. um, for the authors instead of for readers. So I think we need to be careful. of. I, I just think like, why put it in the hands of companies that have already proven that they have these ridiculous profit margins and are extorting us. Right. And I hope more and more universities do what the university of California did, which is the libraries came to a stalemate in their negotiations with Elsevier and didn't renew the contract. So now as a university of California faculty member, I don't have access to papers published since 2019 in Elsevier journals, which gives me even more motivation to not review for them. Right. Like I'm reviewing, yeah. I would be reviewing for a company that's making money off of my review and that my own university has decided was was like extorting them so much that they (laughs) refused to go along with it. So I hope if more and more universities do that, I think researchers will see that they don't actually need those subscriptions and they don't need those publishers. And if we put the same amount of work we put in for them, for ourselves, I think we could recreate a better system. But yeah, I don't know what, I don't know what they're going to do if, if we really start to chip away at their profit. I'm not sure what their reaction will be, but it'll be strong and scary probably. (laughs) 
Right. Well, I'm looking forward to that. Given that <laughs> recent APS and APA and all the other organizations yeah. even are forcing you to take down uh, some of your own work, which is ridiculous. Yeah. I have a final quick question before we mm-hmm. start ra- wrapping it up. So what do you think you might be missing in terms of where the field uh, is going so to make it more open? Um, can uh, Or maybe for if you were to expand it beyond the open science movement, but also to consider these innovations for the credibility and replication, uh, mm-hmm. ro- robust science. What would be uh, the other things that we may need to consider doing that we haven't tackled yet in sciences? I don't know. Um, my, or not my sufficiently tackled, is, yeah. Yeah, I mean, one inclination I have is to say that we need to somehow chip away at this idea of eminence and the, how, the big role that like status and hierarchy plays in science, I think is really, really harmful to the progress of science and the credibility of science. But I don't know how I can't, I have no idea how we start mm-hmm. to chip away at that other than if we make things more transparent, it'll become easier to say when the emperor has no clothes. Mm-hmm. So I think transparency is key to that. I think, yeah, cultivating intellectual humility and always entertaining the possibility that someone might be wrong, just no matter who they are, how famous they are, how much great stuff they've done in the past, etc. Um, so like suppressing that knee jerk reaction to want to say, no, they can't be wrong and they can't have done a bad mm-hmm. study because look at all the great stuff they did or look at, mm. you know, their awards or things like that. So I don't, that, I mean that, yeah, that's a really tough one. I don't know how we change that culture or reduce it. We're never going to get rid of it completely. Hierarchy will always be there in science. Status will always be there in science, but I think we need to reduce how much emphasis we place on that, but I'm not sure how to do that. Well, thank you, Samin, for joining us today. It was a pleasure learning so much from you about the replication crisis, the open science movement and the self insights problems that we may have both as normal human beings as, and the scientists in particular. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. Thanks, Amin. And now it's time for the summary of today's episode. We talked about how many studies in medicine and social sciences don't replicate. The so-called replication crisis led to different reactions by scientists, including those who decided to change the methods and those who raised questions about the claim that there is a lack of replication in the first place. At some point, things got hot and personal, with some attacks towards each other's side. We talked about the value of communication with the general public by the scientists, who are often forced by journals to overclaim what their findings show, presenting evidence with greater certainty than warranted. We also talked about self-knowledge, the average correlation between how somebody sees themselves and how others see them is 0.3, which means that about 10% of the variance is shared between one's own and others' perceptions of the person. We also talked about the meaning of accuracy and how different qualities observer or personal reports may be more accurate. This has implications for characteristics like humility or mindfulness, which may be challenging, if not impossible, to measure through abstract self-reports. Returning to the topic of replication crisis and how insights about the science of wisdom can be used for scientists themselves, we discussed how important it is to be open-minded, intellectually humble about one's own and others' findings, as well as to be oriented towards cooperation and the common good. Finally, we talked about the virtue of transparency in the process of peer review and how preprints have the ability to share and obtain feedback, including critical feedback, maybe one way to address this issue. 
Thank you so much for listening. If you like this podcast, consider telling your friend or colleague about it and show them how to subscribe. Till the next time.